Serverless usually refers to an architectural pattern where the server-side logic is run in stateless compute containers that are event-triggered and ephemeral. Mike Roberts has written a series of articles about serverless computing in which he discusses theories and patterns around serverless architecture. In this episode, Mike and I discuss how to reimagine our software architecture using functions as a service. We go into the costs, benefits, and modern limitations of current serverless platforms like AWS Lambda. Before we get to this episode, a few quick announcements. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. There are more than 14,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, so it's a great place to get your product out into the ears of developers or to advertise available jobs that you might have at your company. Also, if you're an engineer that's looking for an open source project to work on, check out Software Daily at softwaredaily.com. This is an open source news and information site about software. It's being led by Jeff Tribble, a member of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can also check out softwareengineeringdaily.com, which is the website for this podcast. You can find links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find a link to sign up for our newsletter, Software Weekly. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Mike Roberts is an engineering leader who has written several articles about serverless architecture. Mike, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Serverless is a word that has been evolving in its definition. How has the idea of serverless changed since it first started getting used? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I think that one of the things I did just the other week was, was really sort of look into, well, where did this word come from? Um, and, you know, I spoke to a few people that have been involved in in describing what serverless is recently. And, you know, as, as far as I can tell, the, the first sort of examples were about three or four years ago. And, and really, that was mostly, well, in fact, entirely about sort of a, a term that I've described as, and it's on Wikipedia as well, as backend as a service. Um, and this means... Um, applications, typically mobile applications, that in, instead of where we'd normally think about coding our own custom backend app, server-side app, they are relying a lot on um, third-party services. So uh, PaaS was a great example of this. So if you were developing a mobile app three years ago, um, you would very often be using PaaS as your backend. Um, PaaS has now disappeared, but it's been re replaced by various other systems. So that's sort of really where serverless started, but it didn't really gain much traction there. It's really gained a lot of traction over the last year or so um, after the popularity of um, what I call functions as a service systems. So the most, the, the sort of the, the, the typical example right now uh, is AWS Lambda. So AWS Lambda um, was announced just under two years ago. Um, and then so over, over the last year or so, as it's become popular, people have started using uh, the term serverless architectures. A lot to mean that, but some people are also referring to serverless in, in the other meaning of the word. Mm -hmm. Okay, so today, today serverless usually refers to an architectural pattern where the server-side logic is run in these stateless compute containers that are event-triggered, they're ephemeral, Describe the characteristics of a modern serverless architecture, such as that built on AWS Lambda. Describe that in more detail. Sure. Um, I mean, there are many uh, already sort of many examples um, of applications that use that. Um, you know, when when AWS Lambda was first launched. Um, there was no way of, of triggering it directly from a web request. And so one of the classic examples I gave right at the beginning was uh, very much event-triggered um, ideas. So the one they used at the beginning was, say that you have a mobile application uh, that uploads uh, a large video file um, straight to Amazon S3, which is their network file, one of their network file systems. Um, and you want to be able to uh, let other clients be able to download 
um, a smaller version of that video, you know, a down a down resolution version of that file. So what you could do with with a Lambda device, with a Lambda um, application rather, is have it so that it is automatically cooled by Amazon whenever a file is uploaded to an S3 bucket, um, an S3 file store. Uh, it will then your your Lambda function will then automatically process that file, um, likely saving out a different version to another S3 bucket, and will then stop doing its thing. Now, the point here is that when you deployed your code, uh, you never actually deployed a server process. You just deployed a function. Um, and so you, you're not worried about, you know, where, what machines is this running on? How am I running an application? How am I doing various... Um, typical things that you do when you're running a, a normal application of a machine. Uh, AWS handles all of that on your behalf. Um, and that's sort of a very simple example. You have one function um, being triggered by one event. Um, obviously, serverless apps can get a lot more complicated than that. Uh, well, and you, you write one about one example. You, you write about a very straightforward case. Uh, this is like a typical application, like a typical three tier software application where you have something like a pet store e-commerce website where there is a front-end client component that's accessed through a web browser, there's a server component, and there is a database. And this is a very common application pattern. It basically sounds like a model view controller type of thing. How does this type of simple application change when we frame it in the serverless paradigm? With a typical three-tier architecture, um, we normally think of the client, in this case, the browser, uh, being relatively unintelligent. Um, it, it doesn't really have much logic in it. It's about making requests to a server um, and, and responding to those uh, requests just by displaying whatever the server returns. And the server is responsible for all the complex logic, whether it's authentication or page navigation, um, searching, actually allowing the customer to make transactions. That's all implemented in the server. With a serverless architecture, what we see is a lot of that a lot of that functionality moving to the client, and then the client using a collection of backend services to get the job done. So, for example, um, for authentication, we may say that the client may say, "All right, well, I don't need the server to do the authentication for me. I can rely on a third-party authentication service on my behalf." And then we see all of that code just disappear from the server side. Um, we may also see the client um, directly access a, a database um, and a sort of a mobile-oriented database. And that's what uh, PaaS was all about, and that's what Google's Firebase is now all about. Uh, but we also tend to see um, certain logic still needs to be implemented on the server side, and whether that's for uh, transactions um, or for more complicated searches. Now, you have an option there where you can carry on uh, writing that code in a very similar way that you've done previously using an always-on server, or you can start using uh, these functions as a service, as, as, as you were just talking about before, where you can have a, a set of individual functions that can respond uh, independently to all the different client requests. And we can put those uh, independent server functions behind uh, what we often call an API gateway, which is not any code that we write. That's, a, that's a, an application that's uh, given to us by a vendor, which will take our HTTP requests from the client and then route them out to individual functions. Right. So this API gateway kind of replaces this single server that we would have otherwise, and it becomes this kind of broker where it will, you know, the, the client will make a request to the API gateway and the API gateway interfaces with different functions as a service. So if you have a request for search or a request to purchase an item, these will be different requests that the API gateway will broker. Explain what the API gateway does in more detail. How does this interface of calling out to separate services how does that differ from the model of a central server? Well, what we're doing there really is separating out our concerns. So if you think of um, a typical uh, web API server, 
there's two parts to well, several parts to it, but there's there's two parts that I want to talk about to it. First of all, you have your routing logic. So you define all of the endpoints in your application. Um, and then you have all of your uh, logic that's actually performing your business logic. Uh, and what we do with an API gateway is we separate out those concerns. We separate out the routing, deciding which functions we want to actually execute for a given API request from the actual running of those requests. So that's a very simple way of thinking about it. What we also typically have within the API gateway is all sort of the, the non-functional code that we think of um, so things like authentication, um, unpacking an HTTP request into um, its, its sort of more domain-oriented structure. That would also be done as part of the API gateway. We've done a bunch of shows about breaking up a monolith into microservices, but this is slightly different because of the way that different services are managed can you explain why breaking a server-side monolithic application into serverless services is different than breaking them into microservices that we're managing ourselves? So the, the, the difference between microservices and, and, and serverless uh, in some ways is orthogonal, um, but in some ways is, is much more fine-grained. So with, with a serverless approach, when you're using an API gateway, every single HTTP request that you're going to handle from your client um, is going to be routed to an individually deployed function uh, on the on the back end. Uh, so it's almost like a nano service approach in some ways. Um, but one of the things that really hasn't been figured out yet in the serverless world is how best to group all of those functions into logical sets. So as I said, for right now, if you have a um, a single sort of HTTP host um, and 40 different requests that that might handle, that's going to require 40 different functions. And how you group those 40 is completely up to you. In a traditional microservice approach, what you may have is, you know, 10 of those things in one microservice and five of those in another microservice. One aspect that's somewhat different is that these different services are stateless, typically. So, Explain what that means that these services are stateless and how do we handle things like authentication and user sessions, these aspects of our application that we think of as stateful? Yeah, that's a, a really big difference between um, how a, a serverless app is going to work or a, a, you know, a FAS functions as a service app is going to work in comparison to a traditional application. However, there's a, there are precedents and the, the, the biggest example that I like to, to call out to is uh, how Heroku define a 12-factor application. So Heroku is a, a platform as a service that's existed for a few years um, and has been popular with a lot of companies. Um, and what they talk about is that no, for an ideal use of Heroku, no server-side application should store any uh, state within its own memory or its own local disk. And instead, it should rely completely on external state. And that is either going to be um, context that is passed in to uh, the application or is going to be a database or um, fast cache like Redis that sits outside of the application. And so with, with a... With a FAS application, you you have to do it this way. With with Heroku, you can kind of get away, you know, get around that and just assume that, you know, well, we can store some state internally and we're likely to to you know to get hit again. But with a, with a FAS application, you really can't, and you really have to model uh, all of your state in an external system. So, for example, you talked about session state. Um, with with a with a FAS application, any session state has to be uh, external. So you may use, as I said, a Redis database or um, a fast NoSQL, Postgres or MySQL database nearby to your to your application that you can use. Um, and similarly with authentication, the, the assumption is that by the time that your FAS function is called, authentication has already been performed. Mm. You write that this model of serverless applications puts more functionality into the client. Explain why that is. 
Well, it, it kind of forces functionality to be put into the client. You know, there's there's nothing to stop um, fun applications seeing more more functionality in the client. And in fact, we've been seeing that for years already, both with um, mobile apps where we we have a decent amount of code um, in the mobile app itself that might very often directly call out to a database. Um, but also with single page applications, as they're called, web applications that rely very heavily on JavaScript, that instead of thinking of the application being defined as several pages that are each rendered by a server, we actually just have one application within the client and it, it, it handles all navigation within itself without calling out to the server. So we, we've seen that already before serverless. The difference is with serverless, it kind of forces that change. Okay, so we have glossed over the term function as a service at this point, uh, but this is very key to your article, the discussion of function as a, as a service. How much do we know about the way that AWS Lambda, for example, executes a function as a service? Well, there are certain things that they, they tell us, <laughs> and there are certain things that we can into it about what they're doing, but those those secondary things are obviously subject to change. Um, so we know, for example, that when when a when a, an event happens that requires uh, handling by one of our function uh, our functions, that Amazon will do everything they need to uh, to pass the event to us to our function, and our function can just execute. Um, we we know that um, that is going to take less than 100 milliseconds typically uh, for that routing to happen. Um, and we know, and this is really the, one of the big parts of serverless, especially FAS, is that they will handle any scaling for us. So if we suddenly have a 100 times increase in load, uh, we know that Amazon will handle that for us and we don't need to worry about it. What we don't know um, is when an individual function container is going to be spun up, instantiated. And sometimes that can have um, significant time associated with that. Um, and, and depending on the type of application you're writing, that might actually impact um, how useful this approach is for you. So we have had some conversations around serverless on this show. And one thing that we end up talking about is the discussion of container warmness and coolness. Basically, the idea is that when you call a serverless function, what's happening in the back end is a container is getting spun up and it's going to stick around for a while. It's going to execute your function. If you call it again, that call is cheaper if you still have the container sitting around because you don't have the overhead of spinning up a brand new container. What have you thought about the warmness and coolness discussion? How... Like, how much are we going to be configuring the lifespan of these containers that are getting spun up? Well, first of all, we actually have no control over that. Um, and, and any control that we, we feel that we may be able to perform right now um, could be removed by a change of implementation by Amazon or whatever vendor we're using at any point because they make no... Uh, commitments to how they are implementing their system. If if they were to suddenly make a change where they were never going to uh, reuse the same container, that would satisfy sort of the functional contract that they have given so far. Um, so that's that's a really important point to make. Um, sorry, and what was what did you ask again? Well, that kind of answers my question. I I mean, if you can't configure how uh, mm. how you know how many you know how warm your containers are if you can't configure the fact that they're getting spun up or spun down at a given rate it's not really a concern at least in terms of the AWS lambda um and i think you wrote in your article that today we are basically as a hack if you want to keep a container up if you want it to be ensured that the container stays up do you just like ping it sometimes to make sure it stays warm yeah, and, and that doesn't ensure it. It just improves things. And I think that 
this is one of the areas of FAS, which is which is in very early days. Now, one of the things that I've written about is that um, it's very much caveat emptor when we, you know, buyer beware when you start using these systems. And they're, they're definitely, they work well in certain use cases, but in other use cases, they really don't work that well right now. And certain hacks may help, but those hacks may not stick around. What I think we're going to see um, over the next year or two is the the the, the FAS vendors, um, so Amazon and, and various others, will will likely either give us some explicit control over this, um, or what will be more interesting is whether they can actually introduce more smarts on their side, where we actually stop worrying about this. So one could imagine that if they had some very clever traffic analysis going on, they might be able to tell that load was increasing and they could preemptively start containers ready to go. And at that point, we don't even need to worry about mm. things. Um, but so, you know, we're talking here about this warmness, coolness thing. And, um, you know, there's there's going to be more severe latency if you're, if you, you know, if you have to call, if in order to call your function as a service, the container has to be spun up and started. What are the other sources of latency that we have with functions as a service? How does the latency discussion of our architecture change with serverless? Well, I mean, first of all, um, there's there's the aspect that I was talking about earlier on, where you you don't have you're not you basically can't have any state um, within. Uh, your your function, and that that impacts in two ways. First of all, um, any session state that we discuss has to be externalized, and so there is going to be extra latency um, there where you're going to have to call a database or some other store or some other service every time you want to process a request. Um, we already talked about that. There's another important aspect that, as far as I'm concerned, which is um, another use of state, but rather than transactional state, caching state. So, you know, many applications will rely on some amount of reference data um, that they will call when they when they start up, but will then have within cache. And, and maybe you have a, you know, 10 minute or an hour long cache of, of certain reference data. And that doesn't help your initial requests when you're when you're writing an application, but the idea is that over the thousands of, of requests that you process in the lifetime of an application, that each one of those will go a lot faster because you have certain things cached. With with a FAS serverless application, um, you can't rely on that. And a lot of the time you're not going to have that cache stay in there. So again, that introduces a lot of latency. Um, Another aspect which I haven't even written about, but you know, I heard about recently, is um, connection pooling isn't something that you can do particularly well <laughs> in this kind of architecture. And, and maybe you need to actually route individual requests through some other system in order to not overload a database. And that would, in, you know, introducing another hop there in, in, in processing a request, that would introduce a lot of latency. And so... For latency-sensitive applications, it's it's really a big question here whether the current state of the art will work for you. Now, in certain use cases, again, it will. In certain use cases, it won't. Let's discuss some more benefits and costs of building a serverless application. How does serverless affect the development cost of building an application? Okay. Um, so for... Uh, for backend as a service, as I call it, this is sort of the more PaaS, Firebase type usage of, of the word serverless. Um, it, there's, there's, there's many opportunities um, for reduced development cost. Um, you know, I, I was amazed when I've seen over the last two or three years, you know, some developers who may not have come from a traditional software development background and may not have even been programming very long but they're able to deploy full applications that you know many many customers use very quickly uh, and and confidently because they're relying on a whole bunch of backend systems, um, whether it be um, you know the auth zero for um, authentication or Firebase for their database. And so just that idea where so much server side code can be removed that allows them to rapidly um, increase their development time. 
um, sorry, it rec rapidly accelerate their development time, um, but also means that they just have less, you know, components to look after. Um, the other thing that I think is is really sort of key, which you know, for developers, is on the on the FAS side of the fence, um, that you can get feedback on a new idea far more quickly uh, than you would do in a traditional system. So say that you want to try out something with a, with a customer um, in the morning. You can code something up and have it deployed in production way faster than you would do um, with a brand new application of, of some other sort. Apart from, you know, to, you know, PaaS type applications are, are, are pretty fast as well, but there's, there's definitely this benefit of being able to get rapid feedback from a standing start. Okay, so once we get our applications stood up, what about the maintenance and operations cost? How did those calculations change? Well, in some ways, they're, they're definitely reduced. So with a, with a traditional application, and, and again, we'll ignore PaaS here for a second, um, you have this idea where you are maintaining a server system. So you have to maintain your servers. You have to think about patch levels of your, of your operating system. Um, you have to maintain your deployment scripts, Puppet or Chef or whatever you're doing. Um, and there are certain operating system conditions that you need to monitor, like are you running out of hard disk and how is your CPU um, being handled? All of those things go away in a, in a serverless world, and so there's there's definitely um, a bunch of operational costs are reduced. On the flip side, you know, some people say, "Well, then then we're done. This is a a no ops world, no operations world," and that is not true. There are still absolutely um, many areas of operations where you you need to be considerate. And just because you're not monitoring the CPU of your application, you still need to look at how 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 is my application responding? Uh, do I have has something happened on the back end where I'm no longer able to process any requests? So you still need monitoring. Um, you still need to think about security. So there are many operational aspects that still exist. It sounds like perhaps there is a maybe a reduced if there's a reduced cost in the operations side uh, maybe the operations teams could become more proactive in their work rather than reactive yeah and i think that part of you know i i'm a i'm a big fan of of devops and and by devops i mean the the culture usage of that word rather than the sort of the having devops engineers so to, to me, the idea of, of developers operating uh, their own systems in production is a very powerful idea. And I think one of the things that we've seen um, come from the DevOps movement is, is this great idea where people that are traditionally more operations focused can work much more closely with developers. And together as a team, they manage the entire um, production scope of, of an application. And I think that this you know, the move to serverless allows even more of that. So, you know, in, instead of operations folk having to to worry about patch levels and, and chef scripts and whatever, they can actually be, be thinking about some of these trickier questions. So security and performance and load and, and working with the development team to figure out, okay, what's the best architecture? What's the best monitoring um, that we should be using as a team for our applications? And in terms of financial cost, hypothetically, things are just going to be cheaper with serverless architecture, the financial scaling cost. Are there any countervailing forces against that type of cost reduction? Are there any hidden monetary costs to scaling a serverless application? Well, I think that that saying there's going to be less costs Um is definitely true in, in certain situations, um, but isn't necessarily true in all situations. So um, in, in the article I wrote, I described sort of two, two situations where it, it's definitely, you should definitely expect to see um, a reduced cost. And one of those is where you're not processing traffic the entire time. 
um, you're, you say you're only processing traffic you know, 5% of the time, then instead of running a server all the time, you're only running a function 5% of the time. And that, that's a, a good example of where you should expect to see cost savings. Um, the other example, which is, is similar, but just to sort of draw it out even further, is where you have an inconsistent traffic pattern. So say that at certain times of the day, um, you handle 10 times the load that you normally do, but you don't, that, those periods don't last long enough to warrant um, spinning up entire servers for that time. Again, you would normally, in a traditional situation, have to run enough servers to process your entire high load, even though most of the time you're running at 10% of that load. With a, with a FAS environment, um, you, you don't have to worry about that, and so you're only going to be paying for the compute that you're actually using. So those are two good scenarios. Where, where it's possibly not a cost saving um, is where you are actually handling a load that's very consistent through the day and that that can be handled by a whole server. So there, is it gonna be, so say you are consistently handling um, 100 transactions per second. And you're doing that plus or minus 10% the entire day. Uh, is it going to cost less to do that in a, in a, in a serverless environment or not? You'd, you'd have to run the math on that. Um, you know, in theory, you may be saving costs on um, some, of your, the, some of the systems administration that we talked about earlier. On the other hand, because it's so new right now as a world, there may be a whole bunch of other costs that you hit that are because of the of the novelty of the system that you hadn't thought about. So monitoring or logging, that might take longer than it would do uh, in a traditional system. One point that you make in your article that I really like is that any optimization to our code immediately translates to cost savings in a serverless application. This can be kind of subtle. Like in, in an application where we are managing our own servers, like an EC2 set of EC2 instances, we might optimize our code and and have the functions run more efficiently, but we're still paying for our EC2 instance to be sitting there with idle capacity. But in serverless, the container is going to get spun down quickly proportional to how quickly our code runs. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, and you know it, it depends on the how long your your code takes for each transaction. Um, but I, you know, this this point was was raised to me by my friend John Chapin here in New York, and you know he's he's building a system right now where it's it's very much an event driven back end system, um, and each of you know for for part of their system, uh, they they have um, one of their functions will take, let's say. Um, 20 seconds to, to run its course. Um, and the way that AWS Lambda works is that you are charged on a 100 millisecond boundary. So basically, they're paying for 200 units of cost every time they are, are handling one of these 20 second requests. If they can reduce uh, the, how long each, each, each event takes to process down to 15 seconds, then that is going to translate directly and immediately to a 25% cost reduction because now they're only being charged 15 units of time um, or whatever I said, 150 units of time for each event rather than 200 units of time. And that that cost saving is without changing anything operationally on their side at all. There's nothing to say you don't pre-provision each function. You don't say, oh, hey, I want to be able to handle 200 units of cost for this function. You don't do that. You just say, you just run your function. And so that sort of idea where you can see immediate cost savings without even thinking about the operational reduction um, is really interesting, as you said. Why isn't this type of cost savings associated with auto-scaling groups where we could just, you know, if we have a lot of traffic to our servers, we can just spin stuff up, and then when that traffic lightens up, we can spin them down automatically using the Amazon auto-scaling groups? I think for certain situations, it, it will actually be handled by auto-scaling groups. So you can imagine that if you've got a, 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 a web application um, running um, in an EC2 auto-scaling group, and it's currently using 20 instances, um, if we manage to reduce the uh, time taken by all of our requests um, by, by 10%, 
um, you would expect the auto-scaling group to notice that the response time has dropped and for it just to, to level down. And so, yeah, sure, we're going to see this in, in certain situations. But one of the, the, the fun things about um, serverless FAS is, you know, I just said there in, in the EC2 example that um, we'd need to reduce our, our, mean, our, our average time for all requests um, to see a, a net drop in our auto scaling. With, with FAS, we only need to reduce the latency of one of our functions, and then we automatically start getting um, the reduced operational cost for that function. Okay, and one other cost that you write about is that of multi-tenancy problems. We've discussed this a little bit on Software Engineering Daily, people talking about noisy neighbors in a serverless application. How can multi-tenancy negatively impact an application with serverless? Uh, yeah, and this is one where we sort of have to um, imagine rather than necessarily um, <laughs> looking at any particular concrete examples. So um, in theory, we should never see multi-tenancy problems, right? The Whatever vendor we're using, whether it's Google Firebase or Amazon Lambda or whatever, um, we should always, when, when we look at the behavior of our systems, it should always be consistent with um, as if we were running, the only thing running on that vendor was our own, was our own need. So we have to sort of imagine what the sort of things that could happen. And... <clears throat> You could imagine with if something went terribly wrong with FAS. So say say there was a a bad bad customer somewhere, and suddenly, you know, they started um, invoking some behavior um, on a system that that Amazon hadn't thought of. You could imagine that our some of our functions, if they were deployed on the same physical server as that other as that other tenant, could start taking longer um, just because of some. Of, of something that somebody else is doing on that same physical machine. But, you know, we, we don't know whether that's going to happen or how likely that is because we're sort of assuming that the vendor is is looking for the bad actors on our behalf. What are the challenges around testing a serverless application? <laughs> um, many and varied. <laughs> so if we think about um, the back end as a system, back end as a service part of FAS, you, we are implicitly relying on third-party services um, to, to handle some of our, our, our functionality. And so when we, we think about integration testing our entire application, um, we're sort of forced into using those third-party systems as part of our integration testing, um, unless we can simulate those locally. Um, but that's a very unlikely thing to, to have right now. And so if you're, if you're using a third-party system for your integration testing, then there's all kinds of concerns that come up there. Like, can you, how does their cost structure support that? Um, how, how does that really work under load? Does that mean that you're going to have a really slow integration test now and no one wants a, a slow test suite? Um, and all those kind of things. Um, if we look at the FAS, on the other hand, if we look at the FAS side of the fence, um, in certain aspects, the testing story is actually quite good. So one of the things I talk about in the article is that, that FAS functions are just regular code. So as, a, so as an example or a counterexample, um, back in the bad old days of, uh, of, of EJB, all of your code had to satisfy a certain, uh, had to extend a certain parent class. With um, with FAS, you don't have to do that. You have to satisfy a very simple function signature, but there's there's nothing else that is implied. You don't have to uh, run it in a certain context, or you don't have to expect certain libraries. You can just run a function. And what that means, and this is important, I think, is that unit testing functions as, that you deploy as functions as service is actually very simple, and that's a good thing. Um, on the flip side, again, integration testing kicks in. How do you do integration testing 
um, for FAS functions that you're going to run in production in a FAS environment. Well, right now, the only way that you can do that is by running them in that same FAS container. And so doing integration testing, similarly, similarly to BAS, backend as a service, requires deploying your code to a third-party system and, and running, running your application there. That is slow. We don't know how, the co uh, you know, how, how costs are going to impact there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it may be subject to, you know, uh, occasional tests failing for no fault of your code at all, just because the, the, the vendor system is having a glitch. And so that's not, that's not a great situation. Um, I know Amazon are working on, on this right now, but I think that this area of testing, especially integration testing of, of serverless applications is, is one that's very tricky right now and that is going to require a lot of work. What about the question of service discovery? You've talked about this a little bit in your article. Does, does serverless discovery significantly change? It seems like the API gateway would be responsible for dealing with that aspect of our application. But uh, I don't know, maybe this is related to the overambitious API gateways that you talk about, but just discuss service discovery. I think it's a I think it's sort of independent of, of the API gateway. So if we assume, um, again, our, our regular server-side app, the API gateway just used to be the router in our server-side app. Um, and what we're doing now is we're just separating out those concerns. The, the, the trickiness that I think that we've got is how you... Um, from your functions interact with other systems within your other services within your ecosystem. Um, and how you solve that in some ways is no different to a traditional um, architecture. But the, the problem there is exacerbated by the number of functions that you have and the number of different server-side calls that you may have. Um, so that's the general problem about how what do we do about service discovery in FAS. It's not how the FAS functions themselves are necessarily called, but it's the, it's the massive explosion in, in calls that we may be making to third-party services. There's another problem which hopefully won't exist for very much longer but does exist right now, which is the configuration aspect of functions. So how do you know whether you're running a production function versus a test function? Um, there's no really good support for that that's given to us by many of the vendors right now. And we sort of have to have ugly hacks um, to, to implement that. So I want to begin to wrap up, I guess, by talking some about like, where, where have you seen serverless in production? Who is using serverless and how do they use it? Well, I think the, the first point to talk about is the, the backend as a service type apps. The sort of the, the, these are the apps that we've seen around for longer. Um, and many, many mobile app developers are, are using this way of working. Um, you know, I remember first seeing this when I was doing uh, some, some work by myself at a, at a co-working space a few years ago. Um, and someone sitting beside me who was a, you know, a one person development team had this entire website using a whole bunch of backend services. And so there are many, many people using, you know, that used to use PARS and are now using other systems, um, that are doing that. I think the other, the interesting part, the sort of the, the, the more, uh, the less obvious answer to, to your question is, is, is what's going on in the, in the functions as a service space. Um, I think we see two main usages of that that are definitely stable right now. Um, and one is sort of very much like the examples that we, that, that we, that I gave earlier and that Amazon gave when they first launched Lambda, which is when, when clients, um, trigger an event to happen that can can then happen in, a, in an asynchronous fashion. So, for example, the uploading of a file um, to S3 and then have um, functions process that file in an asynchronous way. I think that that's definitely happening. And, and then if we extend that, we then see applications um, uh, like my, my previous company are working on right now where they are taking a fairly significant throughput backend message-driven system. So say that you have some offline processing where you're wanting to handle log events and you're, 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 you're you know, handling a thousand events per second. Uh, you can pretty reasonably move that from a, um, a traditional message-driven system that may use something like 
um, Amazon's message applications like Kinesis or ActiveMQ or a bunch of other message providers where you have a, an always-on server that processes those events, you can now move that, that whole idea to a much more serverless-based um, approach. Um, and I say my, my, my friends in my previous company are using um, Amazon Kinesis, which is a message system in front of um, some very high throughput Lambda uh, processing that they're doing right now. And I think that's a, that's a really solid production use of, of serverless FAS right now. The area where I'm, I'm less convinced <laughs> that there are significant applications happening right now, and I, I'd love to see some big examples of this not being true, is, is where people are using it for significant um, HTTP requests. So there's definitely usages of API gateway type applications out there um, for sort of smaller applications or where, where, where companies aren't necessarily too worried about the latency of certain requests. But I think that if you have a, a complex application or if you have um, some pretty tight latency concerns, you're probably not going to see that many API gateway and Lambda applications right now. And, you know, you have also written a little bit about the future of serverless. One thing you write about is that state management is going to get easier. Explain why that is. I think there's, there's, two, there's two reasons there. Um, you know, we, when we talk about state management, we're talking about those two things that we discussed earlier. First of all, um, it's transaction state, session state, that kind of thing. And the second thing is caching. Um, so I, I think what we're, gonna, we're likely to see are a couple of things. First of all, um, serverless FAS vendors are going to make it easier to use or have access to very low latency out of process state. So for example, you could imagine that, so Amazon already give you the option to, to run a, a Redis instance. They, they call it Elasticash. So it may, I expect that one of the things that we'll see is that you can pay a little bit extra and then get very low latency access to a to an, an Elasticash instance. Um, I think that that's one of the ways that state management will get, will get better, in that we we can just use our existing patterns um, and uh, and just just not have to worry about the latency impact. The second thing, though, I think is a little bit different in that what I think we'll also see is people actually starting to come up with new styles of application architecture that assume the stateless model. So right now, we, 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 just the way that we write applications is that we assume that all of our business logic has access to this state. Well, what if... We, we don't assume that. And what if we say that actually to handle, you know, our business logic has to say, well, if I'm going to process a request for you, you have to pass in all of the context that I need to handle that request. So you, may, you could imagine that maybe you have a front-end traditional application that has access to the database, that it gets the request gets all the context it needs from a database and then handles and then passes on that request to a completely stateless function that it then does the processing and then passes back um, the response. I think that we'll probably start seeing some architectural styles like that coming along that will accept the fact of what we have with FAS and, and just make it simpler for us to conceive of developing on that platform. Hmm. What else is in the future of serverless? Uh, many things. Um, hang on, give me a second. <laughs> I think there's going to be sort of a couple of really interesting things that happen. First of all, sort of leading on from what we were just talking about, um, I'm really interested to see how people start using all of these all of these different types of serverless. You know, what are good um, use cases for it? How do you implement those things? Right now, we're you know people are sort of throwing all kinds of ideas at serverless and seeing what sticks, and that's great. And I'm very glad that we have early adopters doing that because otherwise we'd never get anywhere. But at some point, we're going to start seeing what types of applications work well and what don't. And for those that do, seeing how those fall out, and that's going to be really useful um, for um, other teams that are following on using this stuff. And that's going to both be in both the application architecture domain. Um, but also in the operational domain, like how do we operate these, these systems, these new kinds of systems. So that's, that's going to be great to see. The other thing that I think will be very interesting uh, to see is, is sort of the idea of um, portable implementations. 
And by that, I mean sort of two separate things. First of all, having frameworks or abstractions that can sort of farm out to different kinds of vendors. So we're already seeing this a little bit with um, thing, projects like the open source serverless framework, where you can define an application without it necessarily being AWS Lambda or AWS API Gateway specific. And so you define your app, and then it, you, know, you can then target it at different vendors. And that's useful for two reasons. One of which is that um, if you choose to change your vendor for whatever reason, it, that vendor lock-in problem becomes significantly less of a problem. The other way it should be a benefit is hopefully we can get these high-level abstractions that actually make developing for these platforms um, a lot easier. So that's sort of one area of portable implementation. The other area, which um, I actually heard someone talking about for this for the first time today, is, is the idea of actual self-deployable implementations of this type of platform. And so an example here is, say you've got a company that really likes this way of working in FAS, but can't use AWS or anyone else's public cloud version of this, whether that be for compliance reasons or legal reasons or data sensitivity reasons. Like, how can they run those kinds of systems on premise? Which may sound bonkers because aren't we talking about the whole point of this is not running servers, not running your own servers. But I think there's still going to be benefits to gain there. And there's actually a precedent in if we look at platform as a service. Um, so when, when PaaS systems first came around, we, we, you think of systems like Heroku, where you can very easily, just like FAS, spin up a, some, some application on a third-party system without having to, to manage a whole bunch of stuff. But w what companies and teams saw was that there was so much benefit in that that they wanted to run it themselves in their own private PaaS. And that's why projects like Cloud Foundry exist. And so I think one of the things that we'll start seeing are open source or some other kind of third-party systems where you can download something and run your own FAS implementation on your own, on your own systems. And I think that that will be really interesting for several reasons, one of which is it, it, you know, it will allow people to, to use this style of architecture even if they can't use the public cloud. Um, but also, I think that this may be where we see some of the um, interesting testing improvements come along. So if you could run uh, your FAS functions on a, on a local implementation um, that had a logical, consistent behavior with AWS Lambda, then that would allow you to do offline testing. All right. Well, Mike, that's been a great synopsis of serverless. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, your articles about serverless are illuminating and all-encompassing. Thank you. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.